Would you pray with me? Precious Jesus, we thank you that you are not only a friend in salvation, but you are a friend in your continued presence with us by your Holy Spirit. You are a friend in that you, as the incarnate word, revealed to us the very heart of God. And that you have not left us alone, but you have left us with your word. We thank you for your precious word and we ask for your help now. As we read and as we hear your word, would you change us? Would you make us more like you? Would you give us resolve to abandon sin and worldliness and seek to be holy as your father is holy? Would you help us by your spirit to seek to love one another as you have loved us. We pray that you would help us now. We pray that you would meet each person in here with what is needful this morning from your word. We do not live on bread alone, but we live on every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray that you would nourish us now. Amen. Amen, friends. Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 through 10 is our text for this morning. The second half of verse 3, I should say, as we covered the first half last week. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Amen. Friends, this morning, we are in a transition from what we saw Jonah in verses two and th- or, excuse me, chapter two, verse nine, have this happy exclamation of praise. I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We saw that, and then we saw in chapter three this happy obedience, this eagerness to follow the word of the Lord, to say, to say, Lord, you're sending me to Nineveh. I will go. Right, chapter three, verse three. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Last week, we talked about how strange that was, that someone who was formerly a rebel, who had rejected the word of the Lord, would now go and follow the word of the Lord. So different, so unique, so seemingly reformed. And yet, we're going to see in chapter 4, Jonah have this response. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What happened between 
chapter 3, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 1, that Jonah would go from this kind of happy obedience to this displeased anger. What went so terribly wrong that Jonah would find himself in the beginning of chapter 4 exceedingly angry? If we go back just a little bit to chapter 3, verse 10, we see what happened. We see at the end of chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, that he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What happened? What went so terribly wrong that made Jonah so angry? God turned from the wrath that he was going to pour out on Nineveh. Why did he do that? Verse 10 says, right? He saw how they turned from their evil way. What went so terribly wrong to take Jonah from obedience and joy and praise to anger? Was that Nineveh had turned from their evil and God had turned from his wrath against Nineveh. We're going to explore that more today and ask, what did that look like? Next week, we're going to ask, why did that make Jonah so angry? But this week, I want us to spend some time zeroing in on these seven verses and ask, what did that turning from evil look like? And why did that produce in God a turning from his wrath? Notice in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3, there's this repetition of this word turn, right? Even in verse 8, the king calls everyone to turn from his evil way. And from the violence that is in his hand. And then he says in verse 9, Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then in verse 10, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. We're going to ask, how does this turning, how does the turning of Nineveh away from evil turn God away from his wrath? And what we're going to see is the main point of this text that when sinners when sinners repent God shows mercy. That seems super basic and simple. I'm sure that's not news to any of you, but we're going to look at it in depth today and think hard about it. When sinners repent, God shows mercy. Or when sinners turn from evil, God turns away from his wrath. We're going to see and explore that this morning around 3 questions about repentance, turning from evil. We're going to ask, first of all, what does it mean to repent? And then we're going to ask, why do sinners repent? And then we're going to ask, how does God treat sinners who repent? If you've been in church before, this is probably nothing new to you, but I want us to see it at work in the lives of the Ninevites. And it will help us understand how repentance works in our lives as well. That's my hope this morning. Let's first look at repentance in the life of the Ninevites. What does it, look, what does it mean to repent? What does repentance look like? We're going to see as we look through how Nineveh responds to the preaching of the word. That repentance means to turn away from sin and to trust in God. To turn away from sin and to turn towards the one true and living God. To turn away from evil and to turn towards trust in God. We see first of all in verse 8. The Ninevites themselves turn away from their evil deeds. Look again at verse 8. The king says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
Now remember, we've talked about Nineveh before. This was not the VeggieTales Nineveh where they're slapping each other with fish. This is not, that's not what's happening. This is the Nineveh who is decapitating their enemies and making structures out of their skulls. This is the Nineveh who is, who is be doing horrible things that I don't want to talk about for the sake of the kids here. This is a terrorist country. When he's saying turn from the violence that is in each person's hand, he's not being metaphorical. Nineveh, as a nation, built their empire on the bodies of their enemies, showing intimidation through extreme violence so that they could maintain control. So when the king calls everybody in Nineveh to consider the evil of their ways and turn from the violence that is in their hands, he's talking about turning away from very, very wicked evil deeds that were at the core of their society. Just think about how remarkable that is, that a society like that, that had no qualms about doing things you and I would find repulsive, would come to grips with this, this fact that these things are evil and that they ought to be turned away from. Repentance for Nineveh and for anybody includes turning away from evil deeds. But that's not all it includes turning away from. Look back in verse 5. How do they respond to the preaching of the, of the word initially? Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. It's easy to just read over that and think, yeah, that's great. Of course they did. That is so outside of the character of the people of Nineveh, though. They turned away from their unbelief. They turned away from their unbelief, but it wasn't just like they didn't really think there was a God, and then they said, oh, maybe there is. Listen to what Nineveh believed about God from 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 18, during the reign of King Hezekiah in Judah, the king of Assyria, which Nineveh is a city of Assyria, sends his general down to Jerusalem to demand that Jerusalem surrender, to demand that they give up this city and give up their independence and give all of their stuff to him, essentially. And as he's got his armies around the city of Jerusalem, this guy, he's called a Rabshakeh in Second Kings, says this, Second Kings chapter 18, verse 32. Oops, 1832, there we go. He says this, He's offering this terms of peace to the people on the wall. And he says he's going to come and take them away to a land like their own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, if they only surrender to him. And then he says this, do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Why? He says this, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arped? Where are the gods of Shepharvim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? What the people of Assyria believed was not that there was no God, and now hmm, maybe there might be. What the people of Assyria believed is that their pantheon of gods that they worshipped was almighty and supreme and over every other pagan god of the land. 
They believed that Yahweh was just another regional God that had nothing to say to them and no power over them. And so why would they repent when this prophet of Yahweh comes to them and says, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown? That, that, that'd, be like, that'd be like someone talking big on the school playground and you, you knowing there's nothing to back it up. Right? That's, that's the equivalent of what's happening here. And so, it is remarkable when Jonah records in chapter 3 verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They turned away from this unbelief that this God had nothing to do with them and no power over them to respond to a statement that this God is going to judge them with belief. Their repentance included turning away from their evil deeds, turning away from their unbelief. And then look what they do. Verse 5, again, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then we read about in verse 6, the king himself taking off his royal robe and taking off his crown and putting on sackcloth and declaring a fast in the land. The people of Nineveh are putting on sackcloth and declaring a fast. Why? What does that mean? That, that seems foreign to us because we don't really respond with repentance by wearing sackcloth, right? But this was common in the ancient Near East. In their time, prophets like Joel, for example, would call for repentance. And the way he would call for visible repentance was putting on sackcloth, which is like a rough fibrous material. It's not really comfortable cotton clothing. Putting on this rough material that's uncomfortable, potentially maybe pouring some ashes over your head, and then fasting, not eating. What they're doing here when they're doing this is they're turning away from worldly comforts and worldly pleasures. Not necessarily bad comforts and bad pleasures, right? Comfortable clothes are not bad. And food is a good gift to be received with gladness and gratefulness. But turning away from these pleasures as a sign of sorrow and as a way of denying yourself anything that would cover up your misery. So think about it this way, right? When you're miserable, when I'm miserable, what do many of us do? We grab a bag of chips and we open it up and we eat the whole thing, right? Like we cover up our misery, our conviction maybe even, with food. Or when we're miserable, what might we do? We might go on Amazon and buy something that we've been looking at. Right? We cover up our misery with some kind of pleasure that's out of order. Right? And so Nineveh, what they're doing is they're saying, any way that you might have, you've got this misery coming in, you've heard this message, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And you might be tempted to just eat a bag of chips for each of those 40 days, but you can't. That's not what you can do. You can't cover up your misery. You can't escape your sorrow. Instead, you want to expose that. And so what they're doing is they're turning away from these worldly pleasures, comforts, and affections and reorienting the affections of their heart towards this God who has declared his judgment. Okay, that's part of repentance. Repentance includes turning away from evil deeds, turning away from unbelief, turning away from the worldly pleasures that would cover up the misery that comes upon us because of sin. The people of Nineveh are showing us this in what they do, how they respond to the preaching of the word. They don't just turn away from things, though. They don't just, they don't just spend time sitting in sackcloth and ashes and doing nothing. 
while they're turning away from these things, they're actually turning towards something, right? Turning towards belief in God. When we read about in chapter 3, verse 5, that they believed the Lord. It wasn't just that they stopped their unbelief, but they actually believed that God could do what he said he could do. That God could indeed overthrow Nineveh in 40 days and would if they didn't repent. They turn towards belief. They turn towards a new way of life that doesn't include anymore being violent to one another. Right? That's what the king is calling for when he says to turn away from your evil deeds and the violence that is in your hands. Not only that, though, they turn in hope towards the Lord. Right? Verse 9 of chapter 3. The king says, we're going to do all this. Why? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In other words, we're not going to just sit in misery because we know that there's judgment that's been put upon us. But instead, we're going to turn in hope towards the one who can alleviate that judgment. Towards the one who can indeed show mercy, as we've seen over and over again. This is a a picture for us of what it looks like to repent from sin, to turn away from sin, to turn away from the evil deeds of our hands, to turn away from the unbelief that's in our heads, to turn away from the affections that try to capture our hearts and pull us away from the Lord, and to turn towards the Lord with belief, towards a new way of life, towards hope in the Lord's mercy. In In verse 5, it says, That these Ninevites believed the Lord. We don't know necessarily the extent of that belief. We don't necessarily know that the whole city of Nineveh turned into Israeli proselytes, right? They, They didn't necessarily join the people of God and worship Yahweh. We don't know if their repentance was only response to the command or to the declaration that they're going to be destroyed. And they said, yes. We believe that God could indeed do that. And so we're going to stop doing what we're doing so that we don't incur his wrath. That may have been the extent of their repentance. The reason we don't know if they came full-orbed to serve Yahweh is because repentance is only a part of saving faith. Repentance is only a part of saving faith in the one true and living God. But it's a really important part. And friends, the reason I want to spend time on it this morning is because repentance is part of the gospel that is so often neglected in the church today. We hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, about what he will do for us, how he will make our life better, how trusting in Jesus will relieve us of this guilt that we feel. And that is true and good and wonderful. But friends, we don't understand why the gospel is good news if we don't really know that there's a problem, right? If we don't really understand that we have to repent, we have to turn from the wickedness of our evil deeds, we have to turn away from unbelieving minds and hearts, we have to turn away from the pleasures of this world that would capture our heart and pull us away from God. We need to learn that repentance is a vital part of saving faith. We see from this example in Nineveh, not only is this repentance a part of them being rescued from this wrath, but that it, the repentance itself, the repentance itself requires recognition 
by a city that has no reason to think that they're anything but the greatest thing that ever was. It requires that they recognize that their deeds are evil. Part of the reason why repentance is missing in the gospel understanding of the church often today is because we're missing an understanding that we are wicked, that we are evil apart from the intervention of God's grace, right? We miss what we call total depravity. The idea that Paul presents in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? There is no one righteous, no, not one. That as good as you think you are, you are actually, apart from Christ, a wretched, wicked sinner. And that is true for me. That is true for all of us. And without recognizing that, there can be no repentance. It required Nineveh to recognize that their deeds were evil before they could turn from them, right? It required Nineveh to recognize that the judgment that God said was coming on them was actually deserved judgment. And so in order for us to learn repentance, we have to recognize the evil of our own ways. Another reason why I think this doesn't sink in for us very easily in the church today is because we often think of repentance and a recognition that we are totally depraved in general terms. Right? I know I'm a sinner. I know all are sinners. Some are worse than me, though. Right? So I take comfort in that. Don't do that. That's not good. But we do that, right? We think about repentance and we think about the wickedness of our ways in general terms. But notice when the king is calling the people of Nineveh to turn from their evil ways, he does it specifically, right? Verse 8, again, he says, Turn from your evil ways. Let each man turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He's specifically calling out the sin that characterizes the city of Nineveh. If I were to tell you that each one of us ought to turn from the violence of his hands, and I meant the same thing as the king of Nineveh does, it's not going to be relevant to most of us, I would assume, right? Most of us aren't wallpapering our homes with the skins of our enemies, right? Nineveh was. So the king's like, stop doing that. That's not good. If we were to call for repentance or we were to think about our own repentance, we need to be specific. We need to look at our own hearts and our own lives and the ways that we abandon the word of the Lord and disobey and actually repent specifically. We see also that repentance affects the whole person. As the king calls his people to repentance, he himself is taking off his crown, taking off his robe, putting on sackcloth and ashes. Now, for someone who is already living in the streets as a beggar, to put on sackcloth might be an upgrade. Like they might not have had clothes and now they have some. But for the king, that's not an upgrade, right? That's the king humbling himself. And he's calling everybody in Nineveh from the greatest to the least to humble themselves. He's calling a proud nation who takes pride in who they are as the very core of their identity. Pride particularly in their gods and the might of their gods. And he's calling them to humble themselves and acknowledge the might and power of Yahweh. And he's calling them to take and turn from something that was at the very core of who they are. Namely, we are a violent, warlike people. 
We are known as the guy who can get things done and defeat any enemy put before us. And we take pride in that. And he's calling them to stop taking pride in that. To stop finding their identity in that. It's a call to repent. A call to turn away from an identity that is wholly antithetical to God. Wholly opposed to God. And turn towards this one true and living God. Paul, in the New Testament, talks about it in terms of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Right? In Ephesians and Colossians, he talks repeatedly about how we ought to put off the old self with ways, and he compares those ways to the ways of the Gentile world around them, and put on this new self with characteristics that that match the character of Christ. Right? This repentance requires a whole turning, a whole new way of life. And we know from the New Testament, particularly, that this way of life is not just a one-time thing. This is not just something that we do at the start of the Christian life. Turn from our pagan ways and trust in the one true and living God, right? This is something that we are called to do repeatedly as Christians, which is why thinking about repentance is relevant for you And relevant for me no matter how long you've been a Christian. Because the life of a Christian is a life of continued repentance. Continued putting off the old self and putting on the new. This idea of putting off the old self and putting on the new. Turning completely from a way that we have found our identity in. Is not something that you or I can ever do on our own. It's not something that we can have a hope of possibly doing apart from the work of God. It's not as easy as putting on your coat so that you don't get cold when you go outside. It requires the work of God in us. And that's what we're going to see in the second question. What would cause such a radical change in Nineveh that they would entirely forsake their identity as a proud people, servants of Marduk, Those who can beat up any other potential kid on the block. What would cause them to turn from that? In other words, why do sinners repent? We see in Jonah chapter 3, the reason Nineveh turns from the violence of their ways and turns from their unbelief and turns from even the pleasures that are not necessarily bad pleasures. The reason they do this is because of the powerful work of God through his word. It's because of the powerful work of God through his word that sinners repent. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Notice even in verse 6, as Jonah, as this word goes out from Jonah and captures the heart of the local people. Notice what happens in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne. The word that Jonah proclaimed, this word of God from the, prophet of the, uh, from the mouth of the prophet of God reaches even the king and transforms him. Notice how the word works. It is remarkable here in Jonah. Notice the speed at which the word works. Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, three days' journey across. And yet, how far had Jonah gone into the city when all this happened? One day. One day. Jonah went a day's journey into the city, verse 4, and he called out. 
Now, some say that this is a sign of Jonah's kind of reluctance to, to uh, speak to the Ninevites, kind of going half-heartedly into the city and calling out. And this kind of shows Jonah's laziness. That might be. We've certainly seen that character in Jonah. But even if it is, think about how remarkable it is that that's all it took. And the whole city of Nineveh is converted. Notice the speed at which God's word works. Notice also the brevity of the message. How short it is. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's even shorter in Hebrew. It's only five words. Jonah may have said more, but what the author of Jonah is telling us is this is what's important for us to hear about the message that Jonah proclaimed. It didn't take much. It took just the word of God. One little word shall fell him as we sing in the hymn, right? It just took the little bit of the word of God and it worked mightily, like a spark starting a wildfire in the city of Nineveh. Notice the scope to the whole city. All the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. We read even as we read about the king's edict, that it even extends to the animals of Nineveh. And we might think that's weird, and it is a little weird. But if we think about the New Testament, we think about like Romans 8, all of creation groaning with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Or in Jesus, when he's talking in Luke 19, if these people didn't praise me, even the stones would cry out. Right Here we see in Nineveh, the, going, the word of God going down to the very foundation the creation that surrounds the city of Nineveh and causing revival, causing an awakening of faith. The word of God powerfully at work is why sinners repent. Why Nineveh repented? Because God works mightily through his word. We know this because we know that repentance, turning from sin towards trusting God is an act of faith. And we know that faith comes from hearing the word of the Lord, right? That's what Paul's whole point in Romans 10. Listen to what he says in Romans 10. He says this in Romans 10 verses 9 to 17. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the simplicity of the gospel. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he makes this argument, right? Verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In Romans there, Paul is making an argument for why the gospel has come to the Gentiles and why the, what, what about the Jews? What, where's God's promises to them? And in the process of doing that, he explains to us the beauty of how the word comes and works in your and my hearts. It comes by being proclaimed. We read it, we hear it. And it comes in our hearts and produces in us a faith that produces in us a repentance, a turning away from our sin and a turning towards trusting God. 
Why do sinners repent? It's because the word of the Lord comes to them in power and changes them. If you think about it, you think about why you first came to know the Lord. You think about the way the word of the Lord came to you. It might have been through someone preaching it in a sermon, for example. It might have been through a friend telling you about the word. It might have even been through the, a person you know living the reality of the word. Being embodied as the word as they live in conformity with Christ. And you saw that and you thought, why is that? And you wanted to know more. The word of the Lord comes to us and we repent. How does God respond when we do that? How does God respond to sinners who turn from their sin, who turn from their wickedness and the evil of their ways? How does he treat sinners who repent? The simple answer we see in verse 10 is that God shows mercy, right? God shows mercy. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, or we might say how they repented, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Relented just means he changed his mind. He stopped pursuing the judgment against them that he was going to bring, and he did not destroy Nineveh. God shows mercy. Notice how fast he is to show mercy. In spite of the depth of Nineveh's evil, what did it take for God to be merciful to them? It took the king declaring, everybody turn away from the violence that's in your hand. And it took the people crying out mightily to God for mercy. It didn't take them having a long track record of being people of peace, right? It took them turning their repentance for God to show mercy. Notice too how quick he is to show mercy in spite of the immaturity of the Ninevites' faith. As I said, they may not have turned into Yahweh worshipers, Everything we're given in the text and everything we know of Nineveh shows that this is not the new Jerusalem. Nineveh themselves were destroyed eventually by the wrath of God because of their evil and wickedness. But here, God is merciful to them. The question then that rings in my mind and hopefully rings in yours too is why? Why was God so quick to show mercy? Was it because... That since Nineveh repented, God had to show mercy. That's the question I want to wrestle with. Did did God have to show mercy to Nineveh here? Because it says in verse 10, right? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Did he have to? Was he so quick because he didn't have a choice? What I want you and I to know about mercy today is that repentance and mercy have a close but not a causal relationship. They have a close, but not a causal relationship. What that means is this. The pagan gods of Nineveh had a causal relationship with their people. What that meant is if you made the right sacrifices or said the right incantations, then the God had to do what you say. You earned the favor of the gods by doing the right thing, which you know, could include repentance maybe, you know, you, you, you did something against the God's will and so you stop and you, you do better and you make it up and then the God has to, do, has to show you favor and make your crops grow. That's how they related to their gods. That's how most of the ancient Near East related to their pagan gods, was a causal relationship. I do this and then you owe me that. 
It's easy, friends, for us to view the mercy of God and our repentance in a causal relationship, right? I repent of my sin, and now God owes me mercy. None of us would probably be as brash as saying that, but we certainly act like it. We certainly act like, God, I I repented of that. Why am I still experiencing the consequences of that sin? Why haven't you been more merciful to me? Or God... I know you've been merciful to me, and so now I'm going to repent and make it worth your while, right? Like we've talked about before in this series. But friends, repentance and mercy, when it comes to the Lord, have a close, not a causal relationship. What I mean by a close relationship is that God is responsive to repentance with mercy. God shows mercy. He did to the Ninevites. God delights to show mercy. Right? The king of Nineveh has it more right than we do often. What does he say in verse 9? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Right? He's not thinking of God in causal terms. He's not thinking, we're going to do this and make that God turn. He knows, and he speaks better than he knows, that God is free to show mercy to Nineveh or not. But there is a close relationship between repentance and mercy. God responds to repentance. He doesn't ignore it. And repentance, the the response God has to repentance is to show mercy. The fact that it's not required for God to show mercy to those who repent, like Nineveh, magnifies his generosity. Think about it. God is being merciful. Why? Not because he has to. Why is he being merciful then to Nineveh who deserves to be destroyed? Look in verse 2 of chapter 4. What does Jonah say after he complains to the Lord? I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why was God merciful to Nineveh? Because he is merciful. God was merciful to Nineveh because that's who he is. Salvation belongs to the Lord, as Jonah said, and he can be merciful to whomever he desires to be merciful to. God responds to Nineveh's repentance with mercy because he is merciful. The question remains, though, then, if God is free to show mercy or not, do you and I have any better hope than who knows? Perhaps God will turn and not destroy us. Right? If God is not required to show you mercy, do you have a better hope than who knows? Do I have a better hope than who knows? The answer is yes. Why is that? Because though God is free to show mercy or not, he intentionally binds himself to show mercy to his people. God makes promises, in other words, And God is a promise keeper. And so God, in making a promise, has to follow up on that promise. Right? It's like any of us who want to learn to keep our word, although we are certainly not the Lord. When we make a promise, we intend to keep it. Right? But unlike God, we sometimes break our promises. God never does. He intentionally binds himself to show mercy to his people through covenant. Think about it this way. God bound himself in his covenant with Noah to do what? To never again destroy the earth with water. 
God will never again do that. Not because he is inherently unable to do that. We've certainly seen him do it in Noah, right? During the days of Noah. But because he has bound himself with a promise not to do it. God bound himself to Abraham through covenant that in Abraham all of the nations of the world would be blessed. How? Through his offspring. And he keeps that promise. God intentionally bound himself to his people Israel in the Mosaic covenant to be their God and for them to be his people. And that's why he hasn't destroyed them in spite of all of their sin and rebellion. God bound himself to David that his descendants would one day sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. All of these promises that God has made, all of these covenants, all of this binding of God of himself to a certain path, all of that comes together in Christ Jesus. All of that finds its culmination in Jesus Christ himself, in the new covenant established in his blood. In the new covenant in Christ, God himself intentionally binds himself to the church to show mercy to those who repent, to show kindness and faithfulness and steadfast love over and over and over again in spite of our sin and rebellion. The good news of the new covenant in Christ Jesus is that you can't manipulate God into being merciful to you, but you don't have to. Because he has bound himself in the blood, with the blood of his son that he will forgive all who turn to him in repentance. God has voluntarily bound himself in the new covenant to you and I to be merciful to us. So that we have a better hope than who knows. We have a better hope than the king of Nineveh. We know that all who repent will be forgiven. John, 1 John 1. Right? 1 John 1 verses 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have this promise, not because God, not because we make God do it, because we're somehow manipulating God into doing it. Because God himself has intentionally bound himself to do this in the blood of his son. We have the promise in John 6 that all who come to Jesus, he will not cast out. But will give life to. Why? Because he has intentionally bound himself to do so. He has promised and he will keep his promise. So friends, this morning as we consider repentance. And we consider the life of repentance that is the life of the Christian. No. And have confidence that as you turn from sin towards God, he will be merciful to you. He will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he is faithful and just to do so. Why? Because he has promised. And he has sealed that promise with the blood of his son. For those who don't know Christ. And I know many of you kiddos are still trying to figure out what you believe. As you think about your own life and as you think about your own sin, you can, just like the people of Nineveh, cry out to God mightily, ask for forgiveness, and he will forgive you. You don't need to wonder. You don't need to question. Because God has shown you and shown me with the blood of his son that he will forgive all who turn to him, all who repent. This is the good news of the gospel, and it's so important that we remember this every single day, friends. Next week, we're going to ask, 
Why does this good news make Jonah so angry? Because Jonah is furious at this. And sometimes we might be too. And so next week, we're going to think about why. But for this week, take heart, Christian. Repent. Trust in the Lord who is faithful and just to forgive. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy extended to us in Christ Jesus. Mercy beyond what we could hope for. Mercy that we don't deserve. Mercy that we can't manipulate you into forcing you to give us. Mercy that we desperately need. Mercy that you give because you are merciful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, I ask that you would help us as we daily live the life of repentance, to remember and take heart that though there's not a causal relationship between your mercy and our repentance, there is a close relationship. And that as we turn from sin, you delight to draw near. I pray that you'd help us do that uh, by the power of your spirit at work in us. Amen.